This is exciting for me. Thanks for for making the time. I was thinking in um, uh, preparing for this, you've you probably don't realise the impact that because um, I'd read you before you came to Australia, um, but the impact of your visit and how it's framed uh, so much of. Um, so when people say I have a Girardi intake, I think what they mean is I have a, a James Allison take. Like um, even even down to things that I heard somebody um, quote me last year and said, like Jared always says that God doesn't just love you, he likes you. And I said, whoa, whoa that's James Allison. That's how oh. I stole that stuff. <laughs> Good. Well, since I said everything, I feel very happy that there's an ongoing ongoing uh, conveyor belt of thievery from magpie to magpie as different jewels are taken from nest to nest. (laughs) Well, I'm quite happy to to take people to the source. Um, And in (laughs) fact, uh, friends friends years ago um, made me a a pin-up calendar of uh, my favourite theologians and philosophers, and I think you were Mr May. So that's how um, it is well known. (laughs) That's the nearest I've ever got to a calendar request. (laughs) (laughs) It was literally... It was literally a black and white of your head uh, on top of some male's body coming out of the water or something like that. So, Excellent. so there you go. Yeah, that's so that's the odd form that my appreciation and affection uh, for you <laughs> has taken, James. <laughs> so thanks for your time. Well, thank you. No, and I very much enjoyed reading the piece you sent me there, which was from some years ago uh, when you were doing your arrest in for the immigrant. But I remember reading it from years ago because I remember reading the cop telling uh, telling you that you were the nicest bunch of crims that he'd ever... <laughs> it's a great line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, th- that's that's an example of how, I guess, uh, and why I shared it with you, that um, your impact on me has impacted, like, the, the Love Makes Away movement and how people have thought about the actions and, um, uh, and those children on Nauru um, have all... W- we've been given the the green light, the Australian public, that they will be removed. So even though it seems quite a while ago, um, uh, we were still being arrested uh, last year over that issue. And so that's only a a recent win. Those wheels turn turn slowly. Turn Um, slowly. Yeah. They have now turned, have they? They have now turned, yeah. Uh, We we still have, uh, in fact, um, about uh, an hour before I was chatting here with you, I got word from a friend on Manus. So I was smuggled into Manus Detention Centre um, mm-hmm. uh, was it last year, a year ago. And um, he has just been, he's just arrived in Geneva um, after six years of being in indefinite detention after fleeing a war zone. So um, uh, it's a slow process for so many people. Yeah. Mm. Well, you are very, very brave, sir. I'm a uh, what's the word? A hopelessly hidebound theologian and have nothing great <laughs> credit record. So, just getting to meet people like you is a great. Uh, there uh, are many parts to the body, and and I'm very thankful for the part that that you play, um, James. <laughs> where where I usually start off is asking people um, about when they first encountered the scriptures, and I I, I don't want to. Mm. Um, give any any spoilers. Our our hope with the podcast, our prayer and our heart behind it, is that it would um, give the people um, give people back the Bible um, as a a gift for personal and um, 
uh, social and ecological transformation instead of uh, um, uh, it being a, a weapon that people sometimes are, um, have used against them or use against others. Um, and so we usually ask by, um, when did you first encounter the Bible? But of course, I know some of um, your backstory and I know like in terms of um, uh, evangelical royalty and uh, secession that um, uh, the <laughs> name John, John Stott features early in your story. Yes. Oh, yes. Gosh. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, my dad was a John Stott convert. Uh, my mum was a Billy Graham convert. So, so um, for, for those who aren't aware, in um, the evangelical worlds, we've got both sides of the Atlantic um, in terms of the, the popes of evangelicalism. In, um, yes, the American Pope and the British Pope. Uh, and the British Pope, that's right. Wow. <laughs> Even yes, even Sydney Anglicans would uh, would occasionally uh, bow the knee before such uh, such uh, luminaries. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> um, so yeah, no, I was brought up in a, a very strict uh, evangelical uh, home, and that meant that the the Bible was uh, was forced, I and mean, we were force fed the Bible. Um, uh, hmm as kids, uh, learning Bible verses, family prayer, uh, the whole lot. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty strict stuff. I mean, right. um, I, I had strong objections to family prayer, which seemed to me from very, very early on to be um, a form of a, an attempt to at religious control, as it were. It didn't seem to me to be a, a right. <laughs> which is what it was, of course. But um, so I guess that that was my first my first sense of the scriptures. My, the very first positive memory I have of the scriptures was actually a wonderful cartoon book of the scriptures, which was essentially the whole of the Old Testament or all the um, the narrative parts of the Old Testament, from wow. uh, from Adam all the way through to you know those um, kings after. Solomon, uh, all of whom were killing each other between the North and the South. Um, and it, I don't know whether it was a British or an American cartoon book, uh, because of course at that, time, at that time when I didn't know how to make a difference between British and American. But uh, I do remember that therefore all the stories were illustrated. Um, wow. So, um, and was that a, a positive? You mentioned that that particular experience was positive. That, but, was, a positive, um, that, was, a, that was a positive one because it meant that the names were familiar with pictures, uh, and I suppose that's very helpful as a young uh, as a young child. Sure. Um, also positive was that at that time, um, and it seems strange to say that this is positive, but at that time, um, both in readings in church. And at school, the readings would be done from the King James uh, version, hmm. which, of course, was not English as we normally heard it, but was wonderfully sonorous. Yeah, sure. A, a Shakespearean kind of flavour. Shakespearean, to... yeah. So, you know, there are, so, there are some words or phrases which uh, I can hear I can hear a terrifying headmaster, the voice of the terrifying headmaster of, of the school that I was at as a nine or ten year old, 
reading us the story of Naboth's vineyard and when, um, when whichever it is, Elijah or Elisha finds Ahab, Ahab says to, says to him, thou hast found me, O mine enemy. <laughs> There's something utterly wonderful. Thou hast found me, O mine enemy. The drama. So it sounds like the yes. Bible was, was in the home, it was in the school, but it was also somewhat in, in the, the air and a, a big a big part of your imagination as a as a, as child. a child. Yeah, that's right. Um, but so also when I so when I was at a boarding school aged eight or nine, when I was age nine, I fell in love for the first time with a, with another boy at the at the school. Hmm. Um who of course didn't know anything about it. But of course, at the same time, there was the the horror of discovering that I was an abomination and all those other things, um, also with sonorous language. Um, but it did t- take me to, it, it pushed me to looking at the Bible, which was one of the few things we were allowed to read, um, you know, as wow. bedside, as bedside table books or bedside stool books. Um, just to look at the bits about love. Um, and since the wow. bits about love, particularly from John's, and John's Gospel, didn't seem to have anything to do with anything very condemnatory. Um, so, I, you know, at a fairly early stage, I got the sense that there must be something to this love thing that wasn't the same as what I was being told. <laughs> hmm. uh, if you know what hey, I mean. James, do you remember ever being told directly? I mean, because for, for little kids to find their first crush... Their, their first love. Um, I, I mean, that's a complex enough thing for for kids generally. But do, do you remember part of being what was in the air was that um, that feelings of somehow that was wrong, or um, that the Bible, quote unquote, clearly says, or um, or, or was it more just a um, yeah, I, I, I'm just wondering, at what stage did you make, were those connections made at that early age? Oh, gosh, yes. Wow. Um, the, I mean, I can remember quite distinctly uh, hearing aged nine. So within a short time after having fallen in love from one of my dormitory captains, you know, the dormitory captains who were two or three years older hmm. than than us little kids in the, in the, in the school. And because I had never been a, an early sleeper, I'm a, my, whatever it is, I'm a night owl. So I would never have fallen asleep by the time the older boy arrived to be, to be the, to sleep as a dormitory captain. With the result that very often the dormitory captain would tell me stories or whatever, simply because I was the only other person awake. Um, and <laughs> one of the, on one of those occasions, uh, he decided that I needed the benefit of, of uh, whatever passed as sex ed from a 12-year-old to a to a 10-year-old. So explaining the facts of life, such as they were taken to be by a 10-year, you know, a 12-year-old boy explaining things. <laughs> but uh, amongst the things he explained to me was the existence of these these awful people called queers. Huh. So for the first time in my life, I hear I hear this word queer, and he explains to me what it is, and my reaction is. Oh, thank God, there's a word for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it seems very weird to say, to say this, but uh, it was, um, 
it was a, a huge relief at the same time as it was an awareness that and these were almost simultaneous of being launched over a void <laughs> um, in which I would have no bearings and no support and uh, words like abomination and all of that impossibility would never be possible. Um, all of that mm. came very, very quickly. Uh, you know, I was aware of, I was aware of the, the whole package. We are, you know, as little kids, we are incredibly absorbent. Yes. Um, yeah, we absorb everything that's going on. Uh, and this was, this was 1968. Uh, uh, 1968, very end of 1968, beginning of 1969. That was when I was picking all this up. And this was at the time when my family something I discovered later, of course, one doesn't understand these things, even though one picks them up, mm. was very much involved in kind of the uh, attempt to roll back the 1960s um, and return yeah, to the because 1950s. Because that's the, that was what the Billy Graham and the John Stott thing were effectively doing. Um, mm. They were how to get back to good old values. I mean, we talk about now nowadays about the return to the 1950s. Well, these were really the return to the 1950s because everything <laughs> about the 1960s was uh, was considered to be uh, to be wrong. And of course, the worst of all the things to do with 1960s was the gradual liberalisation of homosexuality, <laughs> right. which wow. happened happened in England specifically in 1967. Uh huh. And in 1967, um, yeah. I don't know if I've ever asked you directly, but um, anybody who's been to your Wikipedia page knows that um, your dad was an MP um, in the right. Tory party as well. In the Tory party. So the, there was that conservative, um, uh, not merely r religious conservatism, but also um, political conservatism. Yeah. And what we now call the religious right. Well, uh, my dad was it. And um, Yes, I mean, I looked it up much later in his life, uh, but to see how he had voted on the Wolfenden uh, reform in, in the UK, homosexuality was, and again, it just shows how these, these stories are all interlinked. Um, yeah. The impetus for reform of homosexual legislation in, in England and Wales arose in the 1950s when a peer, Lord Montague, was caught uh, doing something with a friend. And um, because Britain is the kind of pompous place it is, they're perfectly happy for ordinary people to be arrested for doing things, and that doesn't raise raise any eyebrows <laughs> at all. But but you know, good lord, a, a peer being arrested went at all, you know. Um, so <laughs> the, the wonders of classism—that's amazing. <laughs> that's right. So so <laughs> curiously, Lord Montague um, played uh, an unwitting and a very heroic part, I should say, in being the the starter of and then a lifelong supporter of homosexual law he was himself bisexual now what i didn't discover until very very much later actually not really until my dad's funeral was that lord montague had been a, a childhood friend of my father they were both at school together from the age of wow. eight uh lord montague came to my father's funeral and was tremendously warm and generous to me um but then you know in in Parliament in 19... So that the, the, the Wolfenden Report, which was what changed the laws in the United Kingdom, emerged, that came out in 1957. It wasn't until 1967 with a Labour government 
that that the law was changed, uh, and the law was changed by the home, the then Home Secretary, a man called Roy Jenkins, who I discovered <laughs> later. Uh, my aunt was his lover. Um, oh, my father's, wow. my father's sister was the lover of the Home Secretary who passed... You're an incredibly well-connected person, James. More bizarre than meets the eye, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and my father voted against, of course, uh, the wow. reform, as he voted against any form of... He voted against every form of positive legislation with relation to homosexuality until he left Parliament in 1997. So, Incredible. Um, and so I, yes, that, I, that was that world. And it was quite simple. It was a matter for him. It was a biblical matter. It was perfectly straightforward. There was no ifs or buts. Which, which must be an incredibly safe place to dwell amidst such social upheaval as well. Like the psychological needs that that kind of... Um, yeah, clarity I think, well, I mean, any, any, any kind of totalitarianism is fragile. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that kind of evangelical, interior evangelical faith structure is total. It's a totalitarian and it's fragile. Wow. Because the whole and thing often, has to stay together. Any part of it that collapses, the whole thing collapses. I often ask... Um, on, on the spectrum of liberating or oppressive, where would you you put the scriptures in regards to your early experience? Was it something that was uh, life-giving or death-dealing, all of the above? Um, is that something that changed? How? Because obviously yeah. um, the Bible has been important to you yeah. throughout your journey. Yes. Um I mean, there was a there was a time when I was almost allergic uh, to it. Hmm. And it wasn't really until I joined the Dominicans uh, that I started hearing the Bible read in a different way. And actually, wow. uh, it was Bible classes given by Timothy Radcliffe when he was prior at Blackfriars that, for the first time, made me think, "Oh, do you know, maybe this is going to be okay." Wow. Um, but then, and that was before uh, reading Girard, but then from the moment that I read Girard, I said, oh, so this is what it's all about. I mean, huh. because, uh, so reading Girard was a wonderful gift in that sense because it did blow the whole thing open and make it possible for me to see that there was a way out and through all the previous um pain and that it would be possible to in a sense be much more obedient to my father <laughs> and yeah. his whole way uh yeah than he could possibly have imagined <laughs> yeah incredible and as we so, talk i can see over your shoulder the 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 mint green of the gerardian uh, uh renee gerard reader um, oh yeah yeah you've got that's that's my gerard shelf up there you yeah, can see it, very impressive that's that's uh, that's Girard and that's Girardians and then that goes on and on and on several times down. <laughs> oh, with our interview with Richard Draw, he said that seminary for him was the first place that um, uh, the Bible really became his own. And uh, w we quickly moved to talk uh, about Girard. His influence um, uh, continues to grow, and I think people continue to realise the 
the um, the groundbreaking uh, significance of his work and the genius that he was. But James, you yourself are considered um, uh, one of the world's leading Gerardian theologians. Uh, would you? What's your um, what's your elevator pitch of of um, Gerard? His his. <laughs> How do you summarise that for people? Because I'm sure you get asked by journalists um, uh, and um, uh, scholars when you're visiting different faculty all the time. How, how do you sum up um, Gerard's work? I, well, I try to avoid answering that question, of course, um, as well as I can, <laughs> in the hopes that the elevator is very fast and gets me to whatever floor it is <laughs> so that I can get off without having to answer the question. But since you have me here... Um, Where's the damn elevator? Um, well, yeah. If you press but the buttons, I, it doesn't go any faster. <laughs> I know. I usually give, um, well, I, you know, I usually say, well, there are, there are three parts to this thought. The first concerns desire, the second concerns scapegoating, and the third concerns the undoing of everything that we've just been talking about. Um, so the first part is we desire according to the desire of another. Um, and I think that the point of that is just to shake people out of modern individualism, which, you know, is yeah. the kind of the, soft, the software we think we're all running on when we aren't really. So it's the, it's the software glitch, which we think is software. <laughs> um, because in fact, we are vastly more run by what is other than us than by ourselves. Um, mm. We are vastly more other dependent and therefore a huge number of our reactions, our crowd reactions, even if we think we're doing them ourselves. Yeah. So I, that's the first point I tried to make. How which which other... explains with my nephews why um, when I babysit them about once a week and they have a, a room full of toys and they'll inevitably, being so close in age, end up playing with the same thing or fighting over the same thing. Fighting over things, that's right. And I think that's yeah. one of the absolute central points uh, to that is that it, um, love and hate are not different things. They're flips in the switch of the same thing. In other words, wow. what we are really good at is imitating. <laughs> and mm. imitating is a tremendously positive thing. Mm. But imitating can switch, can, can switch, literally on the flip of anything, into rivalry. In other words, your, your, your nephews are imitating each other, one playing with whatever the toy is, and suddenly one withholds it for a little bit longer than is necessary. And the same imitation process becomes a desperate, rivalistic uh, struggle. And none of them are quite aware of why it happened. There isn't any particular cause, except that, of course, it's the other person's fault because they did it or whatever it was. Um, and, but there you are, once, once you're in rivalry, uh, <clears throat> there is no way out except humility and mm. humility does not come naturally to any other. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the, the absolute key points is that the uh, passionate hatred and passionate friendship are not two different categories. They're two different moments of the same imitative dynamic. Mm. Um, and uh, that's usually important. And the, the second part of the, the thought, of course, is the, the scapegoating mechanism. How, 
given that that's what we're like, given how easily run we are by other people's desires, how very easily uh, infected we are with the contagion of everyone else's passion um, <clears throat> about whatever issue it might be. Um, mm. Whether that's hating this particular political leader or that particular out group or whatever it is. But I mean, um, we can very quickly be run by other people's desires into becoming almost unrecognizably passionate about something which in fact has no real bearing on our lives. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and which takes us out of ourselves and gives us the sense of belonging to something. And then suddenly we've noticed that we've done something terrible together. Mm. But none of us want to take responsibility for it. Um, um, uh, so, yeah, the scapegoat mechanism is how, if you like, contagious imitation, which itself a good thing, can become contagious rivalry, which leads to an all against all, which is at the same time tremendously frightening and tremendously exciting, and is only ever really resolved when everyone can coalesce over against some weaker uh, one. And of course, anybody is weaker over against the, by, by comparison with the crowd that is together. <laughs> yes. So it can, yeah, it can be yeah. a king or a beggar. It, it really doesn't matter. It's just got to be someone who's like us, but not quite like us. Um, Which is why um, it's either somebody on the bottom or on the top. That's right. That's why that's a particularly vulnerable places. Those are particularly vulnerable places. Um, like us, not like us. So with, with, with some kind of, uh, what Jira refers to as stereotypical accusations, some kind of strangeness, too tall, too short, too thin, too fat, too dark, too light, uh, with a slight limp, without a slight limp, whatever the, mm. you know, somewhat, but the key thing is, who is like us enough for it to be genuinely effective for us to get rid of them. <laughs> That's right, but, for it to work. Un, for it to work, but unlike us enough for there to be a genuine excuse. <laughs> uh, <for laughs> so we get away with it. Yeah. Yes, as you, as, you can see, as you can see, it was clearly uh, this person's fault and they must in fact have been cursed by a god for some reason. Uh, no, that's the, yeah. Um, so, yeah, which is, and it, uh, that helps explain, I think, you know, why in one sense, um, why real outsiders are less likely to get it the, in the neck than half insider, half outsiders. Um, yeah. Because the real outsiders are too unlike us really to be threatening. Um, mm. It's only people who constantly hold up a mirror to us and make us feel yuck uh, that are really... <laughs> Really unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, but anyhow, so that was that's the second part. So the what people now refer to as the scapegoat mechanism. The, the Girard refers to it as the the random victim mechanism or the aleatory victim mechanism. Mm. Um, and then the third uh, element of Girard's thought is how exactly that story, um, the story of how we threw out someone who uh, uh, the gods showed us was bad, um, and therefore mm. we were able to build a safe and good group over against other people like that, and to stop people ever becoming like that again, how that story is the foundational story for countless tribes, nations, groups, 
um, over the face of the earth in ways that can't simply be explained by uh, what's the word transmission of the same story. <laughs> There's yeah. a story yeah. which are locally found which suggests that it's actually something to do with the sort of beasts we are. Um, and that strangely, um, the what we now call the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures together, um, is the first sustained anthropological undoing of the myth. Yes. Uh, so Girard, he expected when he turned to the scriptures to find the scriptures being the same as primitive anthropology. Um, in other words, yet more cover-up stories. Um, That's right, yeah. And uh, what he found rather to his amazement was that they were exactly the same as all the other uh, anthropologies, uh, but with one difference. They told exactly the same story, or they had the tendency to tell exactly the same story, but starting from the perspective of the thrown out one. Hmm. And that's what's impossible, uh, because wow. the thrown out one is usually dead, and dead men tell no tales. Hmm. Um, so the story is almost invariably the official story. It's the survivor's tales of how we made ourselves good by throwing out the one who was in fact cursed, and how lucky we were are blessed by the gods to be able to identify the wicked, you know, so-and-so. Um, but instead, what you get in the Hebrew scriptures is time after time, that sort of story, but being told from the perspective of the one who's being thrown out, saying, hey, I haven't done any of this. <laughs> What's yeah. going on? I didn't sleep with my mother. I didn't kill my father. I didn't whatever, whatever, whatever. You hate me without cause. Yes. Um, and that thread being absolutely tied to the prophetic thread in the Hebrew uh, scriptures as a constant undoing and attack against sacred feasts and sacrifices and cover-ups and culminating in the New Testament where you have a lynch murder gone wrong. Yeah. And what's, what's gone wrong is that the one being murdered explained what was happening all the way through uh, and then the resurrection shows the whole story as an act of forgiveness, saying, yep, yes. you did this to me, and guess what? I don't hold it against you. And you, you tell this wonderful parable, James, of a little boy named Fernando. Did I get... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the Fernando story. I, 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 I love it. I love it so much because I think it takes all of this out of the abstract. And I know some people are listening in suddenly going, of course, like um, Abel's blood cr crying out from the ground. I know what James is talking yep. about. Or they're like, Joseph, that, that was the dynamics that were happening f for Joseph with the brothers or um, whether it be texts like the, the suffering servant. And so for some people, there's certain sparks um, going. But why I love the Fernando story so much is that I've been able to tell it in a Sunday school class to little yep. ones and then talk about, Jesus's resurrection, and they get it straight away. But um, uh, uh, we are going to open up Hebrews twelve. Um, <laughs> well, uh, well, we are opening up Hebrews twelve. I show, I show you. So that's that's a, right. <laughs> um, but I would you sketch just a, a little bit of Fernando's story because I think um, without giving too much away, it also speaks to. Um, is there something autobiographical about um, 
uh, that experience or just the tenderness of, of that age and your own um, opening up of uh, uh, those dynamics of being um, a kid who, who is gay and how to navigate that in a... I think, that, I mean, the really, it's, I, I, I hope this won't sound too strange, but I mean, the really important thing for me in that story is when I remembered the name, literally the name of the person at whom I used to point the finger uh, yes. when I was particularly vile school. Because mm -hmm. a, a number of people say to me, gosh, that must be the story of how you were badly treated as a, you know, because you're openly gay now, that mean, must mean you were the class fairy when you were at school. No, no, no. I was one of the survivors. I was one of those who was able to pass. Um, yeah. The story of Fernando as the class fairy, the one who really gets dumped on by all the others, um, is precisely the one who can't pass and therefore yes. has no real choice in the matter. Um, and nevertheless, uh, as I explained, you know, the different, the different versions of the story, the, the one in which he occupies the place deliberately and lovingly because he wants people to be able to play a different game rather mm -hmm. than the how we all gang up and have group unity over against Fernando. If you say, oh gosh, that must be a story in which you're telling about yourself, say, mm, I wish. No, I'm one of the, uh, what I call in that story, the also-rans. The people wow. who, when the finger starts to point, you know, when people are starting, because in the story as I tell it, you have a, a class with the class jocks, and what I call the also rounds and Fernando. Fernando is the person who's going to get it in the neck. And the class jocks are the kind of people who, they're popular anyhow, so they don't particularly need to uh, um, anybody to. But they'll, you know, they'll play with the boys will be boys thing and they'll they'll gang up and bully whoever it seems appropriate. And then there's the people uh, in the I've heard you use the term previously, um, rugby by other means. <laughs> rugby by other means, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something that um, Hollywood often gets wrong when they're depicting high schools. It's the cool kids who, like the really cool kids who are the mean kids. But, but actually, it's, it's um, those who are at the top can be quite oblivious to the dynamics. It's That's those it. who would otherwise be Fernando who, in their panic, will often, like if you want to experience um, some of the most blatant racism in Australia, you get in a taxi and some poor fellow who's been here for only five minutes will pull out the tropes about whatever group is being picked on in the press in a hope that you won't pick on him and he'll feel more Australian. Mm -hmm. yep. So it's the also rounds, what I call the, the also rounds. Yeah, right. I, think, I think that's right. Um, yeah. Yes, and, and I think you're right. The, the, the really mean girls aren't the, aren't the top girls, aren't the really Echelon. beautiful girls. No, the, 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 really, the, really, the really top girls, as you can say, can afford to be oblivious. That's right. <laughs> They're, it's their sycophant club who are the really dangerous ones. <laughs> yeah, the, those that want in, who want the invite to the party, who, who are, are just... But who are terrified and are terrified that the finger might fall on them because they know that they're quite like uh, the, the out group. Yes. So that was, that was me. Like, it was, you know, that story became very clear to me when I realised how... And how almost consciously at the age of 10 or 11 or 12, half consciously, but that half, you know, that very advanced moral, moral understanding that a 10 or 11 year old has, uh, where you're half aware that what you're doing is something absolutely terrible. And yet it's what, yes. how you survive and how you became, how you 
play the game and how you become, if not necessarily part of the in-group, at least uh, show that you know how to play the game. Um, yeah. It, it was said, actually so really key to um, my own conversion at the age of 13 is actually coming to terms with my own part in all those same games, James, which I don't think I've ever mm. talked about before and why I found the Fernando story so deeply moving um, is that, yeah, the, those games of um, not ending up on the bottom so you are bullied. So as the dyslexic kid with ADD, I, I made sure that some other kid, instead of me because I couldn't read, was in that position. And being confronted with that, um, I became very aware of um, uh, what my religious upbringing gave me language for in terms of sin. And it, it yeah. wasn't um, some abstract list, but it was, um, what am I doing? <laughs> like, yeah, what yeah. am I awful about? Why am I doing this to someone else? Because I've been there. And that, that was very, um, uh, what. Well, yeah, what I did to my friend Jamie at, you know, 11 years old is yep. what made me face um, that stuff and suddenly understood what it meant to um, to actually need saving from something. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I look at how I treated a person, in my case, was called Andrew. Um, uh, uh, I, knew, I knew how to be a traitor, a colluder, a schema, all those things, uh, perfectly at that age. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, those are games that if one has learned how to play well, uh, they're actually formative games. Mm. And which is why I think that this, this is so important for us. Um, I thought, what's the and name of that? Um, what's the name of that film in which uh, Tom Cruise is a naval officer uh, and Top Gun. Uh, no, 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 no. That, that's one of the ones. No, I think well, yeah. Right. No, I'm, I'm the one where, which is a a naval officer who's an attorney, and he has an argument with. Oh, you can't um, handle the truth with Jack Nicholson. You can't yeah, what is with Jack Nicholson? Yeah, um, to, um, to me more and uh, a few good men. A few good men. I think it's a few good men. But anyhow, the. That's very beautiful at the very end because the two guys who survived the the two sail the, the sailors who Tom Cruise is there uh, defending, you know, they do get uh, whatever it is their sentence in some way or other. One of them says to the other, one of them says, "But why? We didn't do anything. We were just doing what we were told." And the mm. other says says to them, "No, what we were." What we're, what we're learning is that we should have known how to stand up for the weaker guy. Yeah. Um, so and I think that in, in one sense, that's, it's exactly the same lesson. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, and your book, um, The Joy of Being Wrong, made me for the first time understand original sin in ways that I didn't find deplorable. Um, the, uh, what it is, um, and it, it's, it's, one of the most James Allison titles as well, like the, the poetics <laughs> of the joy of being wrong and realising that there is a beauty because I cut off your, your parable, but um, uh, your Andrew in the story, Fernando, he steps into those games, knowing those games, undergoes that whole game and 
I'll, I'll allow you to finish the, the surprise of the game um, and, and why we would even bother turning to um, Hebrews 12 at, at all, because th this is the story of, of Christ and, and the story yeah. of, yeah. Because it's the, yeah, it's the story of someone actually not merely being the passive victim of, uh, of that mechanism, which is alive in not only in primitive uh, tribes, but in <laughs> primitive uh, uh, middle school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or primary or secondary school classrooms. Or the contemporary the politics. Or, yeah. And of That's course, right. yeah. it is naturally. Yeah, but um, but uh, but he turns out to be the one who uh, had said says that yeah, I mean I did that deliberately, you know. I knew you had to play that game with someone because that's the only game you know how to play. Uh, that's the only way you know how to have goodies and baddies, and that's the only way you know how to bond together and feel all good. And uh, that's actually a very denigrating way for you to to have joy in life you could actually have much more so mm. i occupy this place so you don't need to do it to anybody else and you could start to be set free from the need to do it to anybody and actually therefore actually find new ways of getting together and being together and enjoying yourselves not over against anybody <laughs> which drags you all down um, yeah and so the you know i think that the, that's the, the shocking recognition that the 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 rug is being pulled out from from under you. Um, and so we yes. say, okay, what do we do? Do we now double down and see if we can carry on playing the old game? Except that now we can't really play it with a good conscience, or even pretend we've got a good right. conscience because we know that it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now we've been shown how it works. We'll never again be able genuinely to feel good about it because there's always the nagging doubt that that whenever we create our goodness, suddenly it will it will emerge who we've been creating our goodness over against. So we'll never have that feeling of pure righteousness ever again. Um, so do we double down with that? Or do we run the risk of stepping into a completely unknown world of trying to start to yeah. create togetherness by other means? Um, because when one person tries to play the game of I'm going to carry out capital punishment on another, we just call it murder. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the myth doesn't just like a, a stoning where only one person throws the stone. It, it, it's exposed for, for what it actually what it is. is. Um, um, so, that, and yeah, what happens on... on on Twitter so much um, or social media generally at the moment is people don't feel that it's actually working, that it doesn't actually kind of get the quiet. So it's almost a constant shifting of yeah. um, the, the waves and the tides looking for a target because it's no longer working. Yeah. And only every now and then does it actually get hit someone in some group, maybe a school, who then commit suicide, in which case there is then this entirely fake cathartic moment in which everybody gets together and says how awful it all was, before yeah. that moves on, as you say, with, uh, with contagiousness to someone else. But you're right, that's the whole point. The mechanism doesn't really work. Hmm.
It's still, it's still as nasty. It's still as nasty as ever, but it doesn't provide yes. the resolution that everyone hopes it's going to provide. Yeah. So Rene Girard, as an anthropologist, not as a theologian, when he talks about this text in travail that is moving towards this um, one step forward, uh, uh, one step back, two step forward kind of pattern of actually revealing what other texts work to cover up. Um, uh, strangely, like evangelicals, um, he may say this makes these texts um, uh, unique. <laughs> we might even say um, inspired, but not mean it um, in a theological, but a purely anthropological sense of there. there is something um, seen more clearly here than elsewhere. And that was a part of his own returning to finding a home within the Catholic faith? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think that that's, that's very important. He, just, he does discover a certain uniqueness in the, in the Hebrew uh, text. I mean, you know, in later life, he explored other texts where he can see hints of the same things coming along, like in Vedic texts. He um, mm. hints, hints of things, and there are moments in some of <coughs> the Greek dramatists, and there are moments in some of the Roman poets, where they get a glimpse of the awfulness of the sacrificial mechanism and how it leads nowhere. Um, but he says that the, the, you know, the first sustained critique uh, is to be found in the Hebrew and, and Christian texts. One of the reasons why I find that so important and encouraging, um, and this takes us back to your earlier points about my experience of the Bible, mm. is that there's an enormous difference in understanding Christianity between those for whom the Old Testament is the bad old world and the New Testament is the good new world as announced by Jesus. So in a sense, yeah. the, point, the point of the Hebrew scriptures is to point what was wrong that Jesus came to put right. And I think that one of the things that uh, Girard does and this is something which really has to be attended to with a great care, is bring out that, no, it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, together that are That's the right. way out of yeah. what we call archaic human religion. In other words, yes. and I think this is, you know, just, this is simply an educational thing. Most people assume that the Old Testament stories are the antique myths. But no, the Old Testament stories are themselves critical rereadings of antique myths. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I think it's enormously important that people understand that. Uh, when, for as long as people's, if you like, treasure house of antique myths was the Hebrew scriptures, it, they could say, well, you see, that was the bad old way, and this is now the good new way, which, of course, is a profoundly anti-Semitic and unhelpful That's right. It really is. Uh, yeah. way, of, way of reading. Whereas I think that what, what Girard does is to say, well, actually... The Hebrew accounts are already massive undoings mm. of um, of primitive myths from the the Babylonian world and other Middle Eastern um, mm. Mesopotamian cultures uh, that, that they lived in the Egyptian Assyrian and so on and so forth. Massive rereadings of that world, always in a mm. particular direction. Yeah, I'm um, I'm constantly amazed, James, at how some people. Um, we use the term, oh, an Old Testament God versus a New Testament God. And like, 
in, in terms of any of my Jewish friends, the grotesque kind of caricature of penal substitutionary atonement is um, a horrible news compared to a God who's merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. No, 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 <laughs> like, no. it's, it's often a projection of the shadow side of a distorted and quite toxic Christianity upon um, uh, either the fetishized yeah. other by the... Um, uh, uh, Zionist Christian um, uh, segment of the population or on the other side, it, it's still playing out these. We haven't dealt with our own Christian shadow when it comes to actually dealing with um, the Jewishness uh, of um, uh, not just what we uh, refer to now as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but also the, the, the Hebrewness of the New Testament as well, yeah, though it's written absolutely. in Greek. Yeah. Well, or, or which the you know which our our version are, are in many cases translations into Greek of what were clearly earlier uh, either Hebrew or Aramaic uh, originals in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, no, I, I entirely agree, and I think that's one of the really wonderful things that we've learned over the last fifty years or so is the recovery the recovery of the Semitic nature of the whole of the New Testament package and how carefully and cleverly. It uh, dives into and out of and makes its nest out of twigs from the, the Hebrew scriptures so as to enable it to explain itself better. And yeah. while we've missed that, we've been telling a very, very much cheaper story than the one we're in fact offered. That, that doesn't do Jesus justice and it doesn't do justice like Jesus. And it doesn't fit with everything we find in the beauty of like the rest of the tradition it's um I, I was i was so struck and maybe mm. it was in um raising abel when um uh and i've still got di- diagrams from my journal back in the day of um <laughs> from the tent and the arrows go out that this is an offering um from god to the people and then a, a big cross through um not into the temple an offering made to god um, and you know that's in the Hebrew Bible. We haven't even got to um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus and and Jesus. but if we miss that, would you talk to a little how um, that changes our understanding of what God is doing in Christ? If we get the <laughs> if we get the arrows right, yeah, yes. I mean, I think that it's it it really it really is extraordinary how. Um, exactly the same biblical texts, languages, phrases that everybody knows, and curiously that everybody uses in order to justify the the penal substitution uh, Mm. understanding. If only you reverse the valences, as you say, reverse the arrows, uh, that that it's all true, but just much truer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Much truer than this may happen, because the the whole thing is an attempt to explain God's love by use of sacrificial metaphor Mm. in which God is giving himself into the the more of the violent divinity, which is us. (laughs) Yes. So as to set us free from having to do that again. Yeah. Um, And it's, uh, you know, um, no, it's, it's, it's astoundingly clear. Uh, 
why was it necessary that Jesus should die? And once you say that, it, the odd you talking about necessity is uh, it's it's an odd word anyhow when it's anything to do with God. <laughs> but but yeah. we are the ones who cause the necessity because it's for us the necessity us, is yes. always uh, that we're the, the kind of people who we always need something to save us. So, so you say, okay, God is going to play that game. He's going to give himself into our midst to do with what we do, which is to kill someone in order to try and create our unity, as Caiaphas beautifully pointed out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and But the whole purpose of it is to explode that world, saying, yeah, okay, you've done that. And it didn't work. Yeah. And you never need to do it again. The only sense in which it worked is the sense that I've come to show you to turn this whole exercise of yours into its reverse. Hmm. But it's by... And Fernando is inviting us to play a different game. I play a new game, exactly. Yeah. But so it's it's exactly the reverse uh, mechanism. But exa- but all the texts, want the, once you read them in that sense, you can say, yes, that's exactly what they're saying. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um w- would you take us to one of those texts and actually because I know the book of Hebrews um uh f- for some is is one of the books that's like aha see clearly here we go it's all about um and yet if if you see it with the <laughs> the arrows reversed um th- there is a a far more beautiful picture and for me it's a picture that looks like Jesus. <laughs> That's yeah. the attraction for me. It's like, this is who I've known in prayer. This has been my experience. This is who I see in the Gospels. And so surely everything else has to fall around Jesus. Where would you like to take us? Um, and uh, well, the, verse, the verse that I, I mean, it's just a verse, but it, because I don't want to go into... Uh, long textual reading, but the verse mm. I want to look at is, is Hebrew twelve two. Mm-hmm. Hebrews twelve two, and it says here. I read the, the King James version. Uh, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me read that in the modern version to see if there's anything seriously different for people. Uh, This is the RSV. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hmm. Well, the, um, the reason that I wanted to talk about that uh, is this phrase, for the joy that was set before him. Yes. Um, Because everything depends on how much time we spend with that before looking at any of the others, (laughs) the rest of the the thing. Uh, And for me, I feel like this has been, for me, the the growing process in sitting with this material over over the years. let's Let's try and say this. Theology is slow thinking. (laughs) Um, And one of the terrifying things about explanations of Christ's death is they tend to be cerebral attempts at fast thinking 
so as to make arguments work. Wow. And yet, properly speaking, theology is slow thinking uh, because it involves the changing of the mind, and that's the changing genuinely of a whole lot of synapses and a whole lot of our psychology and a whole lot of way of actually being able to approach something at all so as to be able to bear witness to the fact that we are seeing something different. Yes. And this seems to me to be what's astounding about this, for the joy that was set before him. That suggests to me something utterly extraordinary. Um, it's this sense that this was this whole project was a matter of joy. Yes. It actually requires thinking that before going to the cross, that Jesus had a sense that he was doing something <clears throat> joyful. Mm. That there's something about this world, this universe, uh, that was not a matter of panic or, uh, you know, well, nasty business, but I've got to get it done. <laughs> British colonial officer view of the universe. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, you, you, you know what I mean? Um, that, that actually, there's a joy here. There's, there's something utterly joyful before any of this, which means that he says he endured the cross. What nonsense is that? I mean, how, how can you talk about enduring death? Huh. <laughs> death is not something to be endured. Uh, you're either killed or you're not killed. <laughs> mm. But so already the very fact of using the word enduring, meaning putting up with. That's right. As part of a joy, suggests such an entirely different approach to us, to the kind of things we do, to who we are, to all the things that are, uh, you know, that go under the label of sin or human problems or whatever. Mm. Really, these were not uh, at the top of the menu, as it were, from his point of view. These were not high priorities. It was joy. That was the high priority. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if you go through death, well, of course, you have, to, you have to make death a gift to these people because if, if it's not a gift, it, it merely becomes something that they put other people into. <laughs> so uh, we have, we'll put up with that. Uh, despising the shame, yeah, shame is the, the thing that really, really gets them. Forget, forget sin, guilt, all those things are... But shame is the one thing they really cannot bury. Shame is, shame is when they disappear into a hole mm. <laughs> uh, from which there seems to be no, no rescuing, when all that they really want is someone to tell them how lovely they are. Um, yeah. So it's this sense of someone, <sighs> this stuff, we have to get through it. But the whole thing, the whole purpose of the thing is joy. <laughs> mm. uh, but the whole, the whole thing, us, even the, excuse the language, the fucking mess up, the clusterfuck that is so much of our humanity. Yeah. With our, <clears throat> you know, our screwed up family relations, our incompetent politicians, our 
everything. Yeah. Our criminals, our sleazebags, our traitors, our, all of that. The, behind, uh, behind all of that, there is joy. Mm. And that this is something to be sat in by us. <laughs> As it were, the, the, when we're asked, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is joy. That doesn't mean a sudden, a sudden bright sense of feeling happy. No, it may do. I mean, delighted when it does. Uh, but it means, apart from those, actually starting to find ourselves dwelling within <clears throat> that overall vision and picture of who we are, why we were made, for what we were made, mm. what he wants us to take part with, part of what he wants us to take part in with him. Mm. That is run by, lubricated by, I don't know what word one uses. Yeah. Uh, swum within joy. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that's the, uh, for me, is the, the thing. Because if you're sitting in, if you're sitting in the mind of uh, someone who is full of joy, you couldn't possibly uh, come up with a cranky punitive, watertight explanation of <laughs> paying for sin and compensating wrath and all this sort of thing. Mm. No, 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 no. There's, there's something far, 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 far more, much bigger and more enthusiastic about the whole package than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yet, and yes, we are scrubs and uh, it's very difficult for us to cease to be scrubs. And that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not that he is rejoices us when we get it right that he does yeah but he has joy in us yeah as of what we are and as giving us the chance to become something much much more than we are mm. and uh, for me that's that's just that tiny little verse uh echo time after time after time so i think whoa what yeah. what's going on here? what does it really and it's, it's the same with you know, it's, it's the same with um, for God so loved the world he uh, yeah, own, yeah. It's, it's the same uh, slow thinking uh, requires you to stop and I don't know um, bask that's right yeah. and <laughs> it's bask. almost it's not until those things that for some of us are so familiar, if they were given different language, like if it was the duty set before him, that would make a lot more yes. sense to some people's atonement theologies. Um, uh, or if it, um, God so loved the world that he took out his son. <laughs> like that, that's <laughs> like um, needing to, uh, or God so hated the world that he, um, but, Instead, and I, I think for, for uh, I mean, we've been amazed at how many people are listening to um, the podcast and it's such a diversity of people. And I think some are hearing this and going, this is must be Christianity and why Jared is on about the things that he's on about. But I know for so many others, there are things sparking, James, which are like, yes, but what about? And the incredible thing for me is um, your theology um isn't coming from some 19th or 20th century inspired liberalism um, 
but uh, as a Catholic theologian, you're actually drawing upon the tradition and anybody who's spent any time with ancient Christianity knows that like to spend time with the Cappadocians, this is their understanding, what you've just articulated. It's, it's not new, although it might be fresh. Like um, uh, it, the, there's nothing um, uh, you, novel about right, what yeah, you're yeah. actually That's expressing right. here. That this is actually the, the breadth of the Christian tradition. Um, and the, those greatest theologians um, uh, throughout the ages until the 16th century, this is most of the stuff where they landed. Yeah, there's an awful lot in common before we, you know, I think that yeah, one that we had a, the 16th century is so important in so many ways, um, but it did, it put us into a world in which we are somehow in rivalry with God. Hmm. Um, and... <laughs> That's fascinating. So in terms of the race set before us, we're still racing against Jesus instead of him being the pioneer or the trailblazer. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. And it, I, no, I think it's, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a necessary part, it's been a necessary part of the, the path in which we have become more aware of the value and glory of individuals. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's emphasized all the way in which we've got to be set free from the other in order to become individuals. And of course, that has meant us being set free from, quote, God, uh, as well as from you know, obvious psychological others like family and friends and cultures and tribes. And you can easily see how every positive moment of liberation also throws out babies with its bathwater. Yes. So trying to hold on, trying to hold on to the baby. Actually, yes, <clears throat> being set free from from God, um, if you want, just so long as it's because God wants you to be set free anyhow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and I think that that's uh, yeah. I mean, both both uh, Catholic and Protestant Europe had their own different forms of this uh, rivalry. But yes. really, this is one of the things which I think that uh, where Gia's where thought is so is so wonderful. It enables us to come back to understanding that God is not in rivalry with us at all. Mm. There is no rivalry uh, between God and humans. Yes, and I think any rivalry, one of the things any rivalry is of our is of our imagination. Our creating is part of our, uh, you know, obsessive um, uh, insecurity and so forth uh, projection. Dra dragging Jesus back into the game that he refused to play. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and but also yes, needing needing some way of making ourselves good and right, rather than allowing yes. ourselves to to bask in someone yeah. else's joy and what we are, might be becoming. Not really much caring about where we started from. <laughs> and that's one of the things that has so deeply impacted me about your theology. Um, there's so much talk in some circles uh, of deconstruction. Um, and on the other side of that, I think of Rumi's like um, beyond the field of right and wrong, uh, or mm -hmm. beyond right and wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there, that uh, I think um, the theology that where you're playing and inviting us to play um, 
is something that integrates something something deeper than some of those reactions. Um, I I was speaking in um, Belfast late last year, and I did an interview with the BBC, and um, uh, they were asking about the, the fact that my dad was born in Coleraine and my family's connections and. And they said, how do you relate to, quote, unquote, the troubles? And, James, I told them that if you'd asked me in my early 20s, I would have said I'm neither Protestant nor Catholic. And uh, um, now at 38, I would say I'm both Protestant and Catholic. And I don't mm-hmm. just mean the good stuff, I mean the bad stuff. And part mm. of the courage to actually own the things that everybody else would go, oh, no, that's that's all the bad stuff, Um is something of your theological project and um, the need to not run uh, and create a new moral high ground yeah. um, where we where we get above the waters of God's mercy because <laughs> that's, right. that's just too hard to swim in. Complicity, complicity is the central ethical place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that. If, if anything, if anything, that I've learned from from Girard, it is that there is no yeah. safe place other than complicity. It's yes. only when you have sunk into your complicity that you are capable of being saved. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you're saving, I, otherwise I, you're saving yourself, and that's no good at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. James, this has been um, fantastic. It's such important conversation. And anytime you want to chat like this, um, if you want to practice some passage on a, a group of people who are eager to listen, we're here. Um, we, we love that. This has been wonderful. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I, I, I long to come back to Perth. I very much hope I have an opportunity to well, you have a place to stay, and um, <laughs> that that would be wonderful. I um, uh, I know a bunch of people who would be so keen for you to return um, from several different circles. Actually, um, one of the amazing things about your work is the diversity of different people that you bring together if you're in a place. So um, that sounds like a fun party to me. Let's make Excellent. that happen. <laughs> Was it on the banks of the Hunter? Is that what it's called? No, what's the name of the river? The, the Swan. The Swan, swan river. river. Where the famous black swan was found. Yeah. That's right. That they are. We'll take you to see the black swans again. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, my <laughs> thank friend. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Okay. Ciao, ciao. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.